Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this at my home, which is on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Ohlone people in what is now known as Oakland, California. This podcast is aimed at white Christians like me who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in our own Christian tradition. Speaking of uprooting white supremacy in our own tradition, I'm eager to dive into this week's episode, which will focus on a story that I've always found really moving. Philip's meeting with an Ethiopian person, a eunuch, who works for the Ethiopian queen, on a desert road south of Jerusalem. Wow, there's just been so much coming up for me as I work with this passage after having not visited it in quite a while. I've always seen this as a liberation passage, a story about expanding the beloved community to include everyone. And there are some other things going on here, too, that we should talk about and that I think have a lot of relevance for this movement work we are trying to do. This passage from the book of Acts tells a story about an encounter between two people from vastly different worlds, each with their own complex intersectional identities, their own privileges and vulnerabilities. Reading it this time through, I'm looking at how they engage with each other, what the power dynamics are, and how the spirit shows up in their midst as they talk about a shared story from their own scriptures. This is a story that has been put to use in a bunch of different ways, some useful, some definitely harmful. And for me, reading it this year, it is a story about the tenuous and tender possibility of relationship, real, equitable, mutual interdependence in the midst of oppression, all the ways that can go awry and maybe just maybe go right. So let's jump in. Here's the passage, which is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, if you'd like to read along. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south, to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. 
Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so does he not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I've always resonated with this story as a queer person myself with a certain degree of church trauma. I have identified with the eunuch from Ethiopia as a fellow genderbender who has faced barriers to worshiping. The passage says the eunuch has been to Jerusalem to worship, but they almost certainly would have been denied entrance to the internal parts of the temple, since eunuchs were prohibited, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So I imagine the Ethiopian traveler was returning home disappointed, maybe even crushed by this exclusion. I imagine they were reading scripture in order to seek solace from this faith that still somehow they loved, despite never being able to enter in fully. And then here comes Philip with his story about another person, a man named Jesus, who also had been humiliated and rejected just like the figure in the Isaiah passage they were just reading. And yet this Jesus has been not only redeemed, but also lifted up as the very child of God. I imagine the resonance the eunuch must have felt, because I feel it myself. By reading scripture and then baptizing them, Philip reverses the exclusion they must have faced at the temple, with these gestures that signal inclusion. Baptism, of course, is a sacrament that welcomes someone in, signaling to this queer that people of all genders and sexual orientations are welcome in the Jesus movement, no matter what anyone else says. And lest we try to use this gesture as a bolster to Christian supremacy over Judaism, it is important to note that the Hebrew scriptures, too, point toward this same inclusion. The book of Isaiah, which the Ethiopian traveler is spotted reading, just a few chapters later says this, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, 
To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. That's Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. So like so much of the New Testament, this passage from Acts does not contradict Jewish teaching, but further applies it in the service of love and justice, signaling that all are welcome to come into relationship with God via the crucified and resurrected rabbi from Nazareth. It's such a healing story. I love it. And I think for a while I needed just to hang out in the healing that this passage offers. But coming back to it now with this lens of dismantling white supremacy and resisting colonialism, I think there's more that we need to look at here. Let's turn there now. I love Luke, the writer credited for the third gospel and for the book of Acts, which is where this passage appears. He seems to be just a really justice-minded guy. The gospel of Luke is all about issues of poverty and plenty, and Acts picks up on those same concerns with all its talk of sharing all things in common. And yet, I think Luke misses the complexity of the power dynamics in this encounter. So here we have a black, gender nonconforming Gentile migrant who is a servant, but who also has access to wealth and imperial power, as we can tell from the chariot, that symbol of empire. And then we have a lighter-skinned, cisgendered, Greek-descended Jew traveling by foot, dependent on a nascent community for financial survival, and known to be connected to an executed insurgent named Jesus. There's a lot going on in the power dynamics here. Just picture it for a moment. A fancy chariot is slogging through sand on a barely passable road in the middle of nowhere, and up comes this jogger, probably looking pretty ragged, having traveled so far on foot, and who's trying to keep pace and seems to want to get on the chariot. I have to wonder... Did the Ethiopian fear that Philip was a bandit trying to mug them? Why would they trust this guy? Did they fear for their life? Having just experienced religious exclusion, and now traveling through rugged country with no one around, in a country not their own, the Ethiopian is in an extremely vulnerable position. How did this position shape their reaction to the evangelist who appears alongside the chariot? Did they really want to invite him aboard, or were they trying to appease him? Did they really need him to unpack that scripture, which, after all, is about a humiliation and exclusion that they had just experienced for themselves? Or did it just seem safer to play along with Philip's sense of his own superiority? Did they really seek baptism, or did it just seem like a convenient way to get this guy out of their chariot and get back on their way home? Did they ride away rejoicing in Jesus or in the relief of having survived the encounter at all? I don't think we can know the answers to those questions. But for me, the questions bring up so many other questions about trust 
and mutuality and the possibility of genuine equal relationship across those kinds of power differences. I suspect we all know what it feels like to go along with someone or something because we don't feel we have the systemic backup to resist. It's a terrible feeling. I shudder just thinking about the times I've felt I had to humor cisgender straight men, stroke their egos in order to stay safe. And I have more systemic backup than most as a white cis-passing woman. I can only imagine the pressure BIPOC folks, transgender folks, immigrants, undocumented people, children or elderly folks, and non-native speakers must feel. How often all these folks must find themselves appeasing rather than speaking up about their genuine opinions or wisdom or desires. Wow. In a post-colonial take on this very same scriptural passage, South African biblical scholar Zoridzai Dubi talks about something called social exchange theory as a way of getting at the possible dynamics in this encounter. At the risk of geeking out a bit, I'm going to share what I think I understand from this theory. The idea is, first, that human beings are not self-sufficient autonomous creatures. We know this. And that like all other life, we depend on community for much of what we need. We engage in relationships of exchange with one another in order to get our needs met. So this much is called mutual exchange theory. Social exchange theory says that mutual exchange theory is complicated by power dynamics, that those power dynamics warp our mechanisms of exchange, making it safer for some to ask for what they need than it is for others, and forcing some to agree against their will to conditions that are placed on those survival needs. Reading this, I thought immediately of certain homeless shelters right here in my own county where people are required to sit through a chapel service before they are allowed a cot for the night. I'm sure there are countless other examples of this, things I never even have to think about, but that strip people of their agency and self-determination on the daily. And of course, we bring these power dynamics into our churches and movement spaces. As a white person, it is easy for me to be naive about this. I remember many years ago, at one of the first conversations we ever had about racism at First Congo, my home church, a black man shared that he often didn't feel he could be honest in our church meetings. And right away, one of our white members piped up saying how sad she was that he hadn't been honest and affirming that she really did want to hear what he really thought. And he was like, no, you aren't getting it. What I'm saying is that it doesn't feel possible for me to be honest without harming our relationships and losing whatever modicum of safety I may have found here. We realized then in that meeting that there was no easy answer to this dilemma, that as much as we claim to love one another and as much as we want to be in real relationship, the playing field is just not level, and the risk is far greater for some of us than it is for others. I've often wondered just how close my Black friends can really feel to me when we still have a police force that will use me as someone who reads as a cis white woman and an ostensible concern for my safety to target them. 
I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think I can know. But it seems important to live in the presence of the question. It's part of what drives me to dismantle all the systems that stand between us. And of course, these same power dynamics show up in multicultural multicultural and multiracial movement spaces. As an example, a few years ago, back in 2017, I helped to organize a convergence of people who were active in the Black Lives Matter movement and who identified as Christian or as Jesus followers. I say I helped, but in truth, I was the primary driver. The idea came to me to bring people together from around the country to theologize the movement and strategize how we could bring our faith to bear on the struggle. Specifically, I was interested in how we might use liturgical direct action to inspire change. And that idea just would not let me go. So eventually, I talked to the members of Second Acts, which is a multiracial liturgical direct action affinity group that I had founded a couple years before and that had become a primary community of accountability for me. Folks were open to the idea and willing to help out, but it was clear that it was really my brainchild. And looking back, that set up certain dynamics in the planning process. Not really sure how I could have done it differently, but I do have to acknowledge that. Anyway, we decided to ask people to apply to the convergence rather than just opening it up to anyone who wanted to come. We wanted to limit registration for white folks so that we could ensure that the group would be mostly BIPOC. And it worked. We ended up with a group of 70 truly amazing activists. If I told you the names, you'd recognize many of them. And it was 70% BIPOC and more than 50% Black which felt important since we were focusing specifically on Black liberation. And the first night that we came together in February of 2017 was great. We began with this rousing public event with a moving slideshow of actions. We shared ritual, and there was a mind-blowing womanist sermon on Hagar and Ishmael from Reverend Dr. Donna Allen, all woven together with gospel music. Even then, though, there were things that felt wildly uncomfortable. Our second acts team wanted me to do the welcome, since I had been the driver for the event. Driver. Such a word. And I resisted a bit, recognizing that having a white person speak first might alienate some of the attendees. But then, what did it mean to ask a black person to do it, when it was true that the event had been my vision? wasn't that tokenism. Thankfully, we had deep enough relationships among us that we were able to weather these conversations. And like I said, I think it all came off pretty well that night. The first full day also went really well. We ate really good food together, gathered in circle and sang our hearts out. We shared stories of actions we'd been part of, and then we broke into Bible study groups to look at passages for the upcoming Lent and Holy Week, which was just around the corner. Our plan was to use these Bible studies as starting places for thinking about actions we could take back at home in our own corners of the movement. I had this vision of a whole series of liturgical direct actions popping off all over the country throughout the 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter. So that day went well. It was the second full day that things got stormy. In fact, day two 
has become shorthand in second acts and in some of my friendship circles for those moments when things get real. We started off as planned in racial affinity groups, one for black participants, one for non-black people of color, and one for white folks. I was, of course, in the white group. And wow, thinking about that group now makes me realize just how far we have come in the last four years in figuring out how to create spaces where white anti-racist activists can really nurture and care for one another. I think Surge has a lot to do with that learning, and I'm grateful. From the very start, it was clear that many of us white folks didn't want to be there, that we would rather be with the people of color, and one participant actually gave voice to it, saying, let's face it, none of us really wants to be in this room. The white shame was so thick we could hardly talk to each other through the fog. I think this speaks volumes, by the way, to the ways that white supremacy has devastated white people and limited our relationships with each other. Nevertheless, some good things happened. We tried to support each other. But after about 90 minutes or so, we were ready to be done. I went to check in on the other two groups. The black group was deep in shared grief and anger. The non-black POC group was laughing and bonding. Neither group was ready to end. So the white group dissolved and wandered sort of disconsolately around the building and parking lot until finally we all broke for lunch and then workshops. The plan was that after the workshops and a break, we would convene for a plenary session in which we'd start getting specific about liturgical direct actions we could do around the country. Again, in hindsight, we really should have had some dedicated time for sharing out from those racial caucuses. What happened is that a group of BIPOC women asked if they could kick off the session with a performance piece, which sounded great. We'd already gotten to hear poetry and music from some other attendees to kick off other plenary sessions, so why not? The title of their piece, unbeknownst to me or any of the other planners, turned out to be White Women, We Hate You. You can probably imagine. (laughs) It was blazingly real and honest and brave and hard, 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 both for them to deliver and for the white folks to hear. Thankfully, we'd been very choosy about the white people we accepted into the event, and we all managed to stay present and listen. No one got up. No one stormed out. No one of the white folks cried or demanded the group take care of them. But it was hard, and it went on for about half an hour. And then we were supposed to transition into talking about liturgical direct action. And I was supposed to facilitate me, the white woman. Well, it was clear that we couldn't just plunge onward with our agenda. We had to talk about what had just happened. I looked around at my black and brown co-planners and I could see that they didn't want to take this on. And of course not, because none of us had planned for this. It didn't feel right to ask them to do that labor. So as the designated facilitator for that session, I did the best I could with a lot of help from another white member of the group, my ride or die, Carol Robison. And a lot was said, all of it really important and all of it really ragged. 
I've thought a lot about what kind of container we could have created to process what had been shared. And I'll spell that out in the transcript, what I would have done differently. But I didn't think of any of that then. So there we were all together, raw and angry and anxious about what this meant for the group. And as the spirit would have it, we were supposed to take communion with dinner. (laughs) That had been our plan all along. We talked about it that night all together, and some decided to abstain while others decided to do it as an act of faith. And I wonder how free those decisions felt to the people who made them. No way to know. In hindsight, I wish we had tested for consensus and skipped it if anyone blocked. But we didn't think of that at the time. So later that night as we were cleaning up, I remember that Margaret Ernst, who you know from this podcast, lingered behind, along with another white friend of mine, to check on me and Carol. (laughs) Margaret and I didn't know each other very well at that time, but I will always love her for that. I was able to sob and sob letting all that anxiety and confusion run out of me now that it couldn't harm anyone else. I will never forget that, and it has solidified my understanding of just how much white anti-racists need other white anti-racists with open hearts. Seriously, we need each other. So that helped, and we got through the next half day, breakfast, a closing ceremony, and worship. Of course, no direct actions had been planned, when that had been my whole vision for the thing, was the whole thing a failure? I wondered. Looking back, of course, I can see how many vital relationships were formed or deepened at that convergence. People have continued to support each other on social media. We've organized panels together, and some folks are, I think, working on a book. Every year, one or more of the people who came will post memories of the event, And wow, did I learn a lot. (laughs) I think a lot of us did, those of us on the planning team and beyond. I can't speak for everyone, of course, but I think we may be closer, actually, for having gone through all that together. But how would I really know? Sometimes I wonder how possible it is for us to be close to one another when there is so much valid reason for distrust. Sometimes doing this work feels like such a leap of faith. So thinking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, I find myself wondering, what hope and direction might this passage give us that doesn't disregard the very real barriers posed by systemic power differences? For me, there's something in the setting, that wilderness road. Let's turn there now. The story begins with a message from an angel of the Lord. Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then, in parentheses, this is a wilderness road. 
I feel an angel wink in that last little bit, a wilderness road. We all know that the wilderness in scripture is uncharted and sometimes treacherous space, often transformative, but also treacherous. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness at the very start of his ministry life to face the temptations, right? The wilderness is where God led the Hebrew people around in circles for 40 years as they unlearned the ways of empire and were tutored in the ways of God. Later, the descendants of some of those same people would be led home from exile and empire along a wilderness road and back into the promised land. The wilderness is a transitional space, a space that exists outside the purview of the ruling authorities. That's why John the Baptist was out there doing his baptismal thing, right? He, too, was calling people out into the wilderness to shed the ways of empire and take up new life in the coming kingdom of God. And so Philip is called out onto a wilderness road. Many commentators on this passage have pointed out that there was no single road that would have run from Jerusalem down to Gaza at that time. What roads there might have been would have been little more than footpaths. Gaza was the bare edge of the empire, after all, and Ethiopia was off Rome's map entirely. It makes me wonder, maybe a cross-cultural encounter this powerful could only happen off the beaten path, out in the wilderness, away from imperial oversight from either Rome or Ethiopia, which itself was a long-standing and powerful empire. So here we have Philip, a Greek disciple whose teacher has recently been murdered by the Roman Empire, and an Ethiopian servant of the queen who had been most likely castrated by the court to prevent them from having a family that might have divided their loyalties. Both had reason to be very disenchanted with imperial ways, and both have been called by their god out into the wilderness to meet each other. Feels like there's something ripe here. I'm not sure which one of these characters is most like white folks sometimes. Are we the colonial subject whose leader was just assassinated, or the servant of a wealthy and powerful empire bound to it by our very bodies? It could go either way, I think. But either way, the question for white people is, are we sufficiently disenchanted with imperial ways? with the ways of white supremacy and with the privileges those ways have granted us? Are we willing to leave the beaten path and set out into the wilderness? Yes, but are we really ready? (laughs) I had this startling moment recently with my spiritual director, the wonderful and wise Catherine Clarenbach. I was telling her about a retreat I went to a few years ago where in a prayer service that was totally on fire, Someone cried out, justice come no matter what. And I was talking about how in that moment I had had to think about it and ask myself if I could honestly pray that and really, really mean it, no matter what it would cost me, justice come. And I remember that she quoted Frederick Douglass's famous line, power concedes nothing without a demand. And she said, you know, I'm a little afraid that when it comes right down to it and we're on the threshold of that justice at last, I might need to be forced. 
It was a sobering moment. It made me wonder, am I really as down as I think I am? We're headed into uncharted wilderness, and I just might balk. It is right that BIPOC BIPOC folks are hesitant to trust us in movement spaces, and there's so much cause for humility here. One thing I wish we had done early on in that convergence I told you about is to make space for everyone to share why they were there and what was at stake for them. Looking back, I can see that, of course, there was every reason for BIPOC participants to distrust white participants. They didn't know us, and they didn't know why we were there, why this was important to us. Philip was out in the wilderness because he already knew that the imperially controlled cities were death machines. He had personal experience of that. They killed his friend and teacher in the most brutal way possible. So the stakes are clear for him. What are the stakes for us? And are we willing to tear up the maps, to set out from the familiar, if not comfortable, center of power and meet people of color on the wilderness road, coming not as knowers, not as those who will explain scripture or anything else, but as fellow seekers, fellow worshipers, willing to risk everything we know for the possibility of real mutual relationship. It's a question worth lingering over, I think. The one thing I do know is that the Spirit is nudging us out there. If you are listening to this podcast, I suspect that an angel of the Lord is whispering in your ear, too. Wilderness. Go south. You don't need a map. I will show you if you're willing to trust me. There you will meet a friend you have longed for your whole life long. Amen. How about you? Are you willing to tear up your maps and set out on a wilderness road? Where is the spirit beckoning you, and what is at stake for you? Not how do you want to help other people, but really what is at stake for you? What has white supremacy cost you personally? What has colonialism and imperialism cost? What has it cost your people? And if you were called to answer to the BIPOC folks you are in movement with, to say why you were there, what would you say? Getting clear on that is the first action I want to invite you into this week. The second, along with that first, is to think about your relationship to missionary work. We know that this story about Philip and the Ethiopian has been used to justify missionary work on the continent of Africa and beyond, Because, you know, how can they understand God unless someone with superior understanding explains it to them? So much supremacy. And missionaries have worked hand-in-hand with colonialism to appropriate land and resources from those ostensibly being witnessed to. Does your church fund missionaries? And what kind of work are they doing? 
Can you start a conversation about that in your community? And what about the work you and your folks are doing here at home? Is it missionary in flavor? Are you trying to help others, assuming they need you to show the way? How can you shift into a more authentic and mutual encounter with the people you're working with and for? What would it mean to wander together out into the wilderness? Finally, I want to invite you to give to a Black-led organization that is fostering Black healing somewhere in the U.S. I'll list some examples in the transcript. If we hope to come into mutual equal relationship with the descendants of those our people enslaved, we need to do our work to heal internalized supremacy as white people. And Black people have healing work to do from the intergenerational and present-day trauma of living with all that supremacy. Part of what we can do is help to fund that work. Call it reparations, if you like, or at least to start toward them. So that's what I've got for you this week, folks. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode and of the work we're doing here generally. What are you making of it? How are your own movement struggles unfolding? And what are you learning from those? You can interact with us on our Facebook page, look for Surge Faith, and at our podcast page on SoundCloud, search for The Word is Resistance. We appreciate your feedback very much and are especially eager to hear from BIPOC folks and people who are not Christian. How are we doing? What's working and what's not? We know we can't know on our own. Next week, we'll get to hear a resistance word from my comrade, Blythe Barnow. She always brings something powerful, so be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss it. Together, we are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by that name in this podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you always. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. <laughs>